I know that Cody said a few words to introduce me a little bit earlier. I didn't get to hear them. I was um, exercising some parental responsibilities, let's say. And uh, so if I'm repetitive here at all, forgive me for that. Here's essentially what you need to know about me. I'm, I'm here as a nobody. I pastor a church that is younger than yours, a church that is smaller than yours, the sort of church that envies the place, the sort of place that you have to meet here today. So I come to you with little to offer except the Word of God, and I hope to serve you with that today. I do come with one other thing that I can't speak to you directly from the Word of God, and that is a word of encouragement. Um, it, was, it, it helped me remember just how far away from where we are Fredericksburg is um, driving in this morning. But I want to mention this as a way, as a way of encouragement. Um, as we were driving through, you know, through the west side of Austin and then down uh, from, from uh, on uh, Highway 290 towards Fredericksburg, we drove by a number of other churches where some of the pastors Cody would know, maybe others he hasn't met yet, but pastors who are developing, encouraging, and sharpening relationships with one another. Um, Juan Sanchez, who pastors the church that planted our church just a few months ago, has, has pulled together a network of pastors for mutual encouragement, edification, and counsel. Cody's been a part of that. I've had the chance to be a part of that as well. We drove by places where two or three pastors in that group are, are preaching God's word this morning. And these are churches, many of them weren't in existence seven years ago when my, when my wife and I moved to Austin. And I think just about none of those churches um, knew about one another. But God is raising up a fellowship um, throughout the greater Austin metro area, you know, from Belton to Fredericksburg and kind of everywhere in between, in which pastors are praying for one another. And, and our church back in, in Cedar Park, Texas, we, are, we prayed for this congregation, for your pastor and for your church earlier this morning. So these are, these are not large churches for the most part. They're churches, you know, your size um, churches, that are, some of which are, are, are a good bit smaller even than, than yours, and maybe some that are a little bit bigger. But does that really matter? What matters is the presence of the Holy Spirit and what God is doing to build his church and to spread the gospel to every corner of, of this community and even to plant new churches and to partner in doing that. Much more I could say, but I should lead us to the point where we open God's word and just say thank you for this privilege of ministering God's word to you this morning. We'll be in Acts chapter 20. I'll read the latter part of, the, of, that, pa of that chapter in just a few moments. But I wonder as I look out on a group of people that, that I barely know, I wonder what sort of experiences you all have had with, with passing the baton. No doubt some of you have passed the baton of care for your loved ones to surgeons or anesthesiologists, even hospice care providers. You've given daughters hands in marriage. Maybe you've, you've trusted teachers with your young children and you've sent off adolescent children to college. Even passing the baton of personal responsibility in, in some sense to those who will educate your children. How have those experiences been for you? I wonder what they felt like on the front end and then in the midst of the experience and now maybe looking back some years later on some of those experiences. What do you regret? What do you wish you could do over again? Because that's always going to be inevitable. And in what ways did you find joy in entrusting the care of those that were important, those that you loved, uh, to, to, to some other one who maybe you had a high level of trust in and maybe you didn't? And of course, I do know that this church, even this church here, has not long ago passed the baton of pastoral leadership. 
from one to another. But imagine with me for a second what it would be like for an apostle to pass the baton for an entire city. Okay, not just for one particular church perhaps, but for a city. And as the city of Ephesus that is under our consideration this morning, as it was the capital city of the region of Asia, I'm not talking about the entire continent of Asia, I'm talking about one province, one Roman province in in what would be today modern day Turkey. What would it have been like for Paul, the church planter, the man who brought the gospel to that community, to pass the baton to another generation of leaders who would follow, follow after him? Think with me for a second. What does an apostle have to believe in order to decide that it's time for him to move on? You may have had experiences in your, in your past in one place or another where it was difficult for you to move on. But imagine being an apostle who had led many of the people in the city to Christ, who had nurtured the pastors and trained them, now to leave them in what we'll see in this text is for the last time. They would never see his faces again. What does an apostle have to believe in order to walk away, to move on to work elsewhere, and believe that the work will be secure and continue? That the work will build and advance, not lose momentum, even when it's led not by apostles, but by ordinary pastors, nobodies. Men whose names, many of them, we do not know. What's the root of Paul's confidence? What's the root of his confidence that we will see here in this text? And how do we need to share in that same belief? Share in that same confidence? So we arrive here in the latter part of Acts chapter 20. Paul is wrapping up, in, uh, wrapping up his third missionary journey. He has his eyes fixed on getting to Jerusalem by a particular time before a feast. The Holy Spirit has directed him there. We know what we'll read later in this text that Paul knows in going to Jerusalem, he knows that arrest and imprisonment awaits him and he doesn't know what the final outcome will be, except that ultimately God intends to get him to Rome. He's traveling along along the western coast of this Asian province and he's just a couple dozen miles from the city of Ephesus where he spent several years trained the pastors. Instead of going directly to Ephesus, traveling inland, he sends for the elders from Ephesus to come to him at the city of Miletus. You know, it's kind of like if if one of us were to visit another one of us and we needed to get somewhere else, but we have to drop something off at your house on the way. What's so important is that we not do what? Not enter the front door if we're under a a certain time schedule. This is sort of like what Paul does here. He doesn't go all the way to the city because he knows inevitably that he would have encountered dozens, maybe hundreds of people in in whose lives he had been instrumental. So he sends for the elders to come to him along the coastline. And this is where we'll pick up reading in verse verse 17, and we'll read down through verse 27. In In this passage, Paul is addressing these elders, men he'd trained, maybe some no doubt had believed the gospel through his ministry. And now he's leaving them behind to care for the church, to care for the people that he himself had led to Christ. And he reminds them in this passage of his own pattern for ministry. And I want you to watch as we read verses 17 to 27, how Paul's pattern for for ministry so closely parallels in many ways the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. Watch for that as we read this passage. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears 
and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this congregation would be served today as it has been going back years with those who will stand here and proclaim the whole counsel of your word. We pray that it would, that it would be served in this way, not only in the past and in the present, but into the future as long as your son tarries his return. We pray that this congregation would be a congregation of people who love to hear from your word, who hear from, from it with faith and with hearts postured towards repentance, and who are equipped then for the work of the ministry to build up this body and to declare the gospel throughout this community. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We see here first, in verses 17 to 27, Paul's pattern for ministry. And I want, to, want you to notice a, a number of these ways in which the pattern of Paul's ministry lines up with what Jesus' ministry looked like. So you might have seen there in verse 18 that, that Paul ministered among them, just as Jesus lived among his disciples. You know, Jesus was, he was no celebrity hanging out in the green room with the other VIPs, who then walked out to deliver the Sermon on the Mount after, at, the, at the appointed time, and then when the sermon was done disappeared. No, Jesus, though there were times when he needed to be a part, the consistent pattern of Jesus is that he was rubbing shoulders with the sheep he was ministering to. In verse 19, Paul professes that he served humbly. And surely we see that, that, that uh, pattern in Christ's ministry no less than the place when he washed his disciples' feet, even it, uh, receiving resistance from his own disciples. In verse 19, Paul, through tears, Paul suffers tears and trials in Jerusalem in days to come from Jewish plots, just as Jesus suffered and eventually died at the hands of the Jews, sweating even great drops of blood through the suffering that he went through. In verse 20, Paul speaks the truth boldly, just as Jesus rebuked both the Pharisees and his closest friends when he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And in verse 29, Paul preaches Paul testifies that he preached the same gospel that Jesus did. We see it later in the passage that it is the gospel of the kingdom. Here in verse, verse 21, he's preaching repentance and faith. The same gospel Jesus preached. A, a, a gospel message of turning from rebellion against the king of the universe. Turning from building our own kingdoms to relinquish that ambition of building up our own kingdoms and swear our allegiance to the kingdom of Jesus Christ alone. 
even if that means we relinquish the illusion, to relinquish the illusion that we might be at the center of our own kingdom. But it's a small and temporary kingdom. Repentance means that we commit ourselves to the name of Jesus Christ, to turn from our rebellion against him to him. And then the message of faith is simply a message of dependence. It is a recognition that apart from God's work of grace that breaks into our lives through the death and resurrection of Christ, that there is no way we could ever merit God's favor. That we have no hope of entering into the presence of God as his forgiven children, his heirs, apart from God granting that gift to us by his own mercy. In verse 24, Paul says that he did not give any value to his own life. He did not consider it to be precious to himself. Just as Jesus offered himself as a willing sacrifice for the sins of his people. In verse 24, the latter part of that verse, Paul testifies that he would finish his course and his ministry. Just as Jesus from the cross said, it is finished. The work of the gospel was completed. And in verses 26 and 27, Paul said, hey, I have proclaimed the word of God. I have not shrunk back from declaring to you the whole counsel of, the whole counsel of God. And so on that grounds, he declared that he was innocent of their blood, echoing language from a couple places in Ezekiel. Jesus himself embodied the word and wisdom of God. He, didn't, he, not merely, he, he, he did not merely declare the word of God. He provided a visible representation of God's word and image in human flesh. and Walked among his people declaring what God was like and what God required of those who would enter into his presence. Now, this might raise the question, this, these parallels between Paul and Jesus. Why do you think Paul is rehearsing all these aspects of his ministry here? You know, do, do, you, do you think it was so Paul would remember what, what a great guy he was? So that, sorry, so that the people would remember what a great guy Paul was? So that now, having, having seen his face for the last time, he heads off to Jerusalem to what sort of ministry and imprisonment and death awaited him, who knows where? Have, never to have seen him again, did Paul intend that they would have, have nice memories of what a great guy he had been? I, I doubt that's the case. I suspect that Paul's making another point here. And the point I suspect is this, that in his absence, in Paul's now final visit with these Ephesian elders, men he would not see again, a church to which he would not return again, he intended for these men to remember what his ministry was like, and for these men to remember through him what Jesus' ministry had been like. People in Ephesus who had not seen Jesus but had seen Christ in Paul's ministry. Paul wants these Ephesian elders to remember what the, the embodied ministry of Jesus Christ looked like in that church. And then he wants them to replicate it. Paul wants these elders in the church of Ephesus to minister in that church in the same way that he had, because the same way that he had because he had ministered among them in the same way that Jesus Christ himself, the good shepherd, had. That is the pattern of Paul's ministry here. So Cody, I would say to you, brother, this is your job, to care for this flock in the same way that Paul would if he were here. In the same way if Jesus would, if he, if, that Jesus would care for this flock if he were here. Now you and I and everybody in this room, we all know 
that that is impossible for you to replicate the ministry of Paul, let alone the ministry of Jesus. But the same Holy Spirit that empowered the ministry of Paul empowers your ministry. And he is present within this church, uniting this congregation as the body of Christ. And, and really, the one way that both you and I in our congregations, the one way we can model Paul's ministry is by preaching a gospel of repentance and faith and then modeling that repentance and faith. You know, Jesus never had to model repentance before his people. There was no need for it. It would have been wrong for Jesus to, re- to have repented before the people he ministered to. But you and I, as human beings, we need to be examples of repenting to the people in our congregation, of them knowing that, that we are not yet what we ought to be, and that we will sin against our spouses and our children and against our congregations. And when we do that, it is our responsibility to embrace the gospel that we proclaim. But I would say also to this congregation, it is your responsibility to trust Cody's caring leadership. It is your responsibility to feed, to seek nourishment, to seek sustenance in the word of God that he proclaims from this pulpit. And the word of God that he will equip others to, so that the word of God reverberates throughout this congregation. By God's grace, may the same pattern that we read about in the church of Ephesus be replicated in this church, in Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship. And by God's grace, in other churches that may arise through the ministry of this congregation, whether in this region or in some part of the ends of the earth. So let me encourage you to work and pray to that end. But we also need to see Paul's appeal in this text. We'll see this in verses 28 down through 35. Let me read this portion of the chapter for you now. Picking up in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no in silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. This is Paul's appeal to these men for what their ministry will need to look like. And I want you to see the posture that's required here. I think we could sum it up with the word vigilance. So as spirit-commissioned overseers, pastors are to pay close attention to themselves and the flock. That's what verse 28 tells us. Vigilant attention to themselves and to the flock. So yes, pastors need to pay careful attention. Do you see it there? To themselves there in the beginning of verse 28. So the best pastor in all the world, the best preacher, the, bre- the, the best pastor in providing care for your souls is disqualified if he is not addressing his own sin issues. But also to 
exercise oversight in caring for the flock. That latter part of verse 28, let's look down there for a moment. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In other words, it is your pastor's responsibility to care for you, the church, just as Jesus cared, to to the same ends to which Jesus cared for the church, and to the same degree to which Jesus cared for the church, even with his own blood. It is your pastor's responsibility to stand between you and wolves who would attack this church. I took my family, my wife and I took our family up to Waco a few weeks ago where there's, uh, outside of Waco, there is a, uh, a mammoth dig. And you can walk through this, this metal building where on, on sort of a catwalk and look down where they're digging up, um, a dig that's in process, digging up skeletons of mammoths that have been, that have been underground for, well, I can't tell you exactly how long, but they would tell us for thousands of years. And the person who's given us the tour told, pointed out, you know, this set of bones and that set of bones. This was a, a large mother mammoth, and this is a baby mammoth here, a baby mammoth here. All died fairly suddenly in some sort of flood. They weren't exactly sure what kind of flood. Uh, but they died in a flood suddenly. And here's this camel. There's a, there's a saber cat tooth that they found, and over here is a camel. And the question that the tour guide raised is, why would a bunch of mother mammoths allow a camel up close to their young? And what they knew for sure, I mean, it only makes sense, is that a mother mammoth would not allow a camel close to the mammoth young if they viewed it as some sort of threat, and unless, probably unless they saw some benefit to having the, the camel close. And here's their working hypothesis. From what they can tell, camels, believe it or not, in this age had bigger eyes than this kind of mammoth. And they suspect that the camels had better vision. Okay, so while the mammoths may have had great ability to smell and obviously very strong, what the camels had was the ability to see threats coming from far away. Cody, be the camel, brother. Your pastor is responsible to be the one who sees threats coming to this congregation before you can. That may mean that he comes across as a little bit suspicious at times, as he hears about things that, you know, the, the last most popular quote-unquote Christian book, or whatever is appearing as Christian television, or the new celebrity preacher. It is his responsibility to be alert for wolves, for saber cats that could become threats to this congrega- congregation, at, whether from within the congregation or from outside it. That is his task. Give him the space to do that task, to be a little bit skittish about teaching that just seems a a degree or two away from what Scripture teaches. So you don't want a pastor who's slow to recognize wolves. You also don't want a pastor who's reluctant to fight those wolves. And you also don't want pastors who can't tell the difference between a wolf and a sheep and winds up, you know, shooting the sheep. But worst of all, You don't want pastors who are wolves themselves. Look with me down at verse 30. Paul says in verse 29, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. But in verse 30, he says, From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things 
to draw away the disciples after them. In other words, Paul anticipated that from among the Ephesian elders, there would become, there would be pastors who would arise who would be wolves, who would seek to destroy the flock, to scatter it, to damage it, to feed off of it. And this happened. This happened in history. So when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, he writes to Timothy telling Timothy about his responsibilities to the church in Ephesus. And he says, charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. And if you read 1 Timothy, you'll see that there was different doctrine being taught within the church. And then in 2 Timothy 2, in chapter 1 there, Paul writes that all who are in Asia, remember Ephesus is the capital of Asia, Paul writes all who are in Asia turned away from me. And he goes on and names names of specific men who apparently had some position of leadership or influence who had led others to turn away from the teaching that Paul had left behind. And then we come to the book of Revelation and we see that in the letter, the revelation to John that was written to seven churches, when he addresses the church in Ephesus, what do we know about the church in Ephesus? It had left its first love. Well, what more likely way could that have happened than by its very pastors? Some of its very pastors to have emerged as, as wolves. We flip down to verses 33 through 35 here in Acts 20, and we see that you don't want pastors who are in it for the money. You want pastors who care for the flock, whether or not they get paid. Now, don't start getting ideas here. Okay, I can, I can take you to other texts of Scripture that are explicitly clear on the fact that I mean, how many animals am I going to make Cody out to be this morning? Don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, okay? The labor is worthy of his hire. You need to provide for him and his family in a way that, as much as possible, liberates him from the pressure of having to make very difficult financial decisions and that liberates him to provide hospitality and to be generous to this church and to others. You want to care for him in that way because you will be well cared for when he is cared for in that way. But you don't want a pastor who's in it because of the financial remuneration. And I'll say one more thing here. Even, even, it's an implication of the text. Even worse than having not enough pastors to care for this flock is having the wrong ones. Is being in a rush to, to raise up more elders or pastors who would serve alongside Cody, which you want. I mean, you want that as, as qualified men emerge. But it can be much more dangerous to move too hastily, as Paul writes about in 1 Timothy 3. It can be more dangerous to move too hastily than to move too slowly. There's a passage in, in the first book of C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that I think sums up what we're reading about here really well. I, I don't know whether Lewis had this particular passage in mind, but, it, but there's one sentence that just paints a beautiful picture of the pastor's job description. The setting in the story, this is, I hate to give away the book, I'm going to assume that you'll forget about it if you haven't read it yet, but after Aslan has been raised to life, he goes to the witch's castle to raise back to life the, the creatures that, that she had turned into stone. One of the animals that Aslan breathes life back into is another lion. Of course, Aslan is the greatest lion, the king. There's another lion there, and when the work's done, Aslan calls all of these animals to order to, to lead all of the animals and other creatures into battle against the white witch. And he says, those who are good with their noses must come in front with us lions to smell out the battle. And the story goes this way from there. With, with a great deal of bustle and cheering, they did exactly what Aslan said. The most pleased of the lot was the other lion. 
who kept running about everywhere, pretending to be very busy, but really in order to say to everyone he met, did you hear what he said? Us lions. That means him and me. Us lions. That's what I like about Aslan. No side, no standoffishness. Us lions. That meant him and me. At least he went on saying this till Aslan had loaded him up with three dwarfs, one dryad, two rabbits, and a hedgehog. That steadied him a bit. When we were all ready, it was a big sheepdog who actually helped Aslan most in getting them sorted into the proper order. That's a sentence that sticks out to me. So, Cody, here we go again, brother. You be the sheepdog. You're a camel, you're an ox, and a sheepdog. I, I, don't, I think that's it for the animal analogies this morning. But, brothers and sisters, you want a pastor who will care for you, you know, in an age of In an age of self-aggrandizing celebrity pastors, people who are seeking to build their brand, who are seeking to show off just how much their skills line up with Jesus, you want a steady, faithful sheepdog who will round you up, lead you, and care for you, even at cost to himself, and protect you, ward off the enemies to this congregation. And you know... If you have a really faithful sheepdog, and I expect and pray that you do, there might be a danger there. You might start thinking after a few years or a few decades that your pastor is not so much a sheepdog as a lion. Don't be deluded by that. Don't be confused and start thinking of him as more than he is. Your church has one king, you have one Messiah. You have one lion, one champion who secured the victory for you. Just one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is your Savior. He is your Messiah and He is your King. And as much as we pointed out earlier, the the comparisons between Paul's ministry and Jesus' ministry, the parallels here in this text, there's some important differences. Look back at 22 and 23. Paul went to Jerusalem not knowing what would happen to him there except that he would face imprisonment, And plots from the Jews. Jesus went to Jerusalem not knowing. No, Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing exactly what would happen to him. In fact, orchestrating the events that would happen there to bring about his death. His death for us. And Paul says in verse 26, another dissimilarity here. Paul said he was innocent of their blood because he had warned them of God's judgment. Because he had proclaimed God's offer of forgiveness. He warned them. He proclaimed the gospel. How much more than that Jesus Christ did? Yes, Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and repentance and faith. But Jesus didn't just preach it. He secured it. Jesus is the only human being who didn't didn't earn God's judgment upon himself because he was the only truly innocent human. And he didn't just preach forgiveness. He accomplished it. He secured it for all his people by taking their guilt, our guilt, upon himself. That is the gospel message that Paul and Jesus and Cody and I would all call this congregation to to this morning. I don't assume that every person in this room has repented and turned to Christ in faith. I must not assume that. But friend, I offer you this forgiveness, the forgiveness that Paul preaches about. This is yours if you acknowledge your guilt and your hopelessness, if you affirm that your pattern of rebellion against God, and not just a pattern, but any act of rebellion against God at any point in your life, and we are all guilty, 
that it deserves the full and just execution of his wrath upon all of us. We deserve a death sentence for treason against the king of all the universe. But, but the, the hope of the gospel means that the opportunity is yours today to believe that Jesus has received your death sentence in your place. And he is raised again to eternal life as vindication of the fact that God received his gift, that God received his, his act of, of submission and his act of sacrifice, and that he has received it in your place, and that his resurrection is a first fruit, sort of a down payment on a resurrection that is coming for you as well. So friend, Jesus extends this offer to you in this moment. If you have not yet received it, turn from rebellion to submission and trust. Look to Jesus and find rest. It is that simple. It will not be easy to follow Jesus with all your life. But it is as simple as turning to him in repentance and faith. Now, friends, I want to ask you, who within this congregation will join Cody in the work of reverberating the word throughout this flock, of preaching the whole counsel of God's word? This does not have to be exclusively men. We can turn to Titus 2 and see a very clear and simple example of how women are to train other women to obey God's word. But yes, this congregation will need other men to step up and begin helping others to follow Jesus through the word of God. And some of you, God, will move in your hearts and, and cause you to be qualified and equipped to serve alongside Cody as elders. You know, if that's something to interest you, I would encourage you to speak to him. Whether this be an opportunity that would emerge in the short term or the long, ter- the long term. And we brother and sis- we sister churches would love to encourage Cody and give him counsel and to, to him and to your church in whatever ways are biblical and appropriate to serve you in raising up more pastors for this congregation. Now with all the, the dangers that Paul knew were coming for him in Jerusalem, how could he think of passing this baton? How could he pass it? knowing that some of the people he was giving the, the baton to would one day as emerge as people who would take that baton and, you know, use it to beat the sheep. I suspect it's because of what Paul believed, what he believed about God. His posture is vigilant, but even more foundational than his posture here in this text was a foundational principle, a decisive principle in his mind. It was something that Paul knew about God. Look with me down at verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This echoes what Paul had said back in verse 20 and verses 26 to 28 about how he had not shrunk back from declaring to them everything from God's word that they needed to know and hear and obey. Paul knew that this work of declaring God's word was at, the, was at the root of his task and that it would be for these elders as well as Paul left them behind. And as I argued earlier, I believe this is Paul commissioning these men to follow after him in the pattern of ministry that he was leaving behind. So, brothers and sisters, this task of declaring the whole counsel of God falls to Cody and any other elders that will emerge in this congregation in years to come. And friends, this, is, this might be a hard thing to hear, but you need to rejoice when Cody and your pastors do not shrink back 
from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word. There will be times that will come when he will need to say things to you as a congregation or to you as an individual very specifically in a way that might feel in your face that will, call, that will be calling you to repent and trust God's promises when your lives are out of order with that. Friends, there will be no time when he is loving you more than when he speaks God's word directly into your life and calls you to repent. There'll be no time when he is loving you more than when he says something to you that kind of risks the, 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 the friendliness, the peacefulness in your relationship with him. I mean, there's this lie out in culture right now that love means encouraging people in whatever path they are inclined to follow. Encouraging them, you know, giving them affirmation along the way. But that in no sense is biblical love. The biblical love of a shepherd in this text is a pastor caring for the sheep and warning them and standing in their way, holding them back when they're about to run off a cliff. He will love you in that way. But the principle here shouldn't be any surprise. Paul Paul knew that the word was able to build up these men and that the word was able to build up this congregation in Ephesus. Paul knew that the word was sufficient to secure their forgiveness and their eternal inheritance. And Paul knew that the flourishing of the church in Ephesus, just as it was not ultimately contingent on him, neither was it ultimately contingent on those elders. The future of the church in Ephesus rested in God's hands. This is my wife's and my first Sunday away from the church that, that, that I pastor, the church that, that we planted back in February. And it's a little bit painful to be away. It was, there was a little bit of angst in, in, in agreeing to be here. It, don't get me wrong, it's a joy to be here. But I had to counsel myself. I had to counsel myself that that church didn't need me. That church is getting along just fine without me today. I'm not present with the church today. But you know what? The Holy Spirit of God is present with Cedar Point Baptist Church today. And I think he's a little bit more sufficient than I am. Is he not? So the Holy Spirit of God and the proclamation of the word in this congregation is sufficient for all of the needs of this church. As it has been in the past, it's so it is in the present and will, be, will continue to be in the future. Jesus is present with you. He is working in you and he is working in this community through you. And, and even in the lives of one another, he is working through you. Let's look at these last few verses, how Paul cl- closes his, actually how the story concludes. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Imagine this scene. Imagine the gravitational pull to just stay there and serve alongside these men that he had nurtured and nourished and encouraged. So why not stay? Why not just do that? Would it have been sin? Well, actually, I guess it would have been because the Holy Spirit had compelled him, as Paul told them, the Holy Spirit had compelled him to head to Jerusalem. There was another mission ahead of Paul. 
You know, what we really need to understand here is that Paul's disposable. You know, he's like sandpaper on your, your, your power sander. He's like, he's like a drill bit that you've used for a year or two, day after day, week after week, whatever, that wears out. He's no longer needed in the church in Ephesus. There are other drill bits that are there to be used. And, and, and you know, pastors aren't craftsmen. We are not the one who is doing the work in this congregation to make it what God intends for it to be. We're not craftsmen. We're not the power source. We're not even really the tools. At most, we are drill bits, sandpaper, you know, interchangeable drill bits. The craftsman fashions the masterpiece. The bits are useful for a while, then they're worn out and forgotten. Cody, that's your task. If you shrink back from it, you will fail. No matter how much this church loves you five years from now or 50 years from now. Congregation, your task may be harder. It is your responsibility to receive this fashioning work as God uses Cody to scrape away what he wants to remove, to poke some holes with that drill bit every now and then, holes that will be painful, to sand and polish and finish this congregation for something greater. And you know what that is, right? This is why your church is here. Your church exists here to display in this body the glory of Jesus Christ. To be, an, a, to be a building that is fitted together that directs the praise and the glory to him. You know, we could say it this way, that you are in human flesh the image of God. United with the head Jesus Christ. God intends for this building here on the outskirts of Fredericksburg to be a light to this community. And you will be that light, not only when you share the gospel with someone that you cross paths with, cross paths with in, in town, but they will know what it means to be a Christian when they see the way that you repent of sin and trust Christ and through the love that you have for one another. That is why this church exists. Not for the sake of our own immediate, you know, financial needs or spiritual needs, not merely for, you know, spiritual encouragement, but to declare the glory of Jesus Christ. Hear the word from your pastor. Trust that word. Repent as it calls you to repentance and as it exposes areas of ongoing sin in your lives. The verse closes with prayer. They accompany him to the ship. They knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much weeping. It should be no surprise, again, as it is throughout Acts, that in pivotal times, in painful times, in times of decision-making and mission shifts, the church prays as a reminder of the church's dependence upon Jesus Christ. Let us close in that way. Father in heaven, we praise you for what you are doing in the city of Fredericksburg, in this gospel preaching church, and in others. We pray that you would exalt the name of Jesus Christ through Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship. We pray that you would keep Cody faithful, that you would give him wisdom in in training and equipping others to serve alongside him in this church. And we pray that both men and women would, would receive that equipping and that there would be men who would, who would come alongside him to support him and to pastor this church with him. We pray that the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine brightly from here. 
that you would call many men and women and children in this town to faith in Jesus. We pray even that you would send workers from this congregation elsewhere into your harvest for the sake of the name of your Son, in whose name we pray.